Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to Michael Hartman, Director of the Center for Strategic Giving, about what he sees as the major problems in the philanthropy sector today and about the ideas that are being put forth to address those problems. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right, welcome to another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am your host, Jeremy Beer, uh, coming to you today from a brand new studio, a real studio with fancy microphones and padded walls, and um, there are chairs in here and, and big tables and the whole bit, uh, most of which I have not yet figured out how to use. I mean, I know how to use the chairs, but I haven't figured out how to use the uh, fancy microphones. Uh, not coming to you. Uh, as usual, from the storage closet on the second floor of the American Philanthropic Offices in downtown Phoenix. So that should all mean a sound upgrade for you, the listener, to enjoy. Uh, or so uh, our producer, Katie Janice, uh, hopes and believes and tells me. So um, Katie's behind the scenes as usual, and I, I thank her for all her work. Our guest today is Mike Hartman, a senior fellow at the Capital Research Center and director of the Center for Strategic Giving uh, at CRC. Uh, the Center for Strategic Giving provides analysis of and commentary about philanthropy and giving. Uh, Mike is one of the really the few people doing that uh, on a consistent basis. It's not a, not a really crowded field, as we'll talk to him about, certainly not from the perspective uh, from which he comes uh, at the topic. It's not very crowded. Uh, he's also the co-editor of The Giving Review, a joint project of Philanthropy Daily and the Center for Strategic Giving. Uh, you can find the Giving Review online at philanthropydaily.com. Uh, for more than 18 years, Mike served in various roles on the program staff of the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee, uh, including as its director of research. We'll talk to him about his time there. Uh, Mike's a past visiting fellow at the Philanthropy Roundtable in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is the author of Helping People to Help Themselves, a Guide for Donors, co-author of uh, Capital Research Center's The Flow of Funding to Conservative and Liberal Political Campaigns, Independent Groups, and Traditional Public Policy Organizations Before and After Citizens United. That, is almost, that title is almost 19th century or 18th century in length. Uh, <laughs> I, <or> we'll have, <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping that was all on purpose. That was an homage to uh, you know, some late 1700s uh, uh, a sort of tract or pamphlet. Anyway, you're a lawyer too. I'm going to finish it. You have so much to introduce you about. Uh, you, 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 at least you're a graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School. I don't know if that means you're actually an attorney. Uh, are you? You know, I'm a non-practicing attorney. When I got to Bradley, I resigned my membership in the bar, not wanting to have to take continuing legal education. That's yeah. I was wondering about that. If you're not, if you're not practicing, you may not want to keep doing that stuff. But I did pass the bar. I've got to say, since. <laughs> Since well, good. No, have... that's the important part. That's the important yeah. part. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say, there's so much else I like to say about you and introducing you, but you, um, with real clear uh, uh, policy, I think you don't you edit their philanthropy and giving section or page or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Good. Well, 
Our conversation uh, today will focus, I think, largely on the many issues, challenges, and problems besetting the philanthropy sector today, many of which uh, people may not have any inkling of, uh, as well as sort of the reform ideas that are being put forward also may be very foreign to people. So we're going to get into all that. And we're recording on September 30th, 2021 for future reference as, you know, whatever, what black box this podcast gets pulled out of, you know, in the distant future, they'll know uh, when we were talking. So anyway, welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. I hope your other guests don't think that I'm uh, regressing the quality of, 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 uh, of conversation partners to the mean or anything like that. But uh, I think I think we'll be okay there. I'll, I'll let you know if we get any complaints. Yeah. And how's the new studio? I, I'm picturing you on like a chaise lounge or something. Is, is no, it a nice it's okay. only, I'm not that, I didn't get here soon enough to really get myself set up. So yeah. I'm in a actually fairly uncomfortable chair, uh, but that will keep me alive and alert as our teachers yeah. have to say in school, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about your background before we kind of get more into the present day, because I think your background uh, I'm sure it shapes your approach, perspective, and um, opinions, your analysis of the philanthropy sector today. You, um, you were at the Bradley Foundation, the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. I think I'm saying that right. It is Lyndon. You no, know, you are. I was going to congratulate you for that. That's uh, yes, it's the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Fund. They were brothers, right? And they were, they and they started a foundation that's become a significant foundation in Milwaukee. It does a lot of grant making in Milwaukee just for the good of Milwaukee. Um, does a lot of good for marginalized uh, communities and vulnerable sort of populations in Milwaukee, but also has a national giving uh, portfolio as well. What did you learn at Bradley uh, in your time there, 18 years, about um, just about the sector generally, how it operates, and maybe also kind of about how to give well and how to give not so well? Yeah. So after graduating from law school up in Minnesota and 1993, I got a fellowship at a place that Bradley Fund called the Wisconsin Policy Research Institute, one of these state think tanks. There was a, a slew of conservative state think tanks at the time, and now there are more. I had no idea, Jeremy, what a private grant-making foundation even was, but uh, it quickly occurred to me someone was paying the light bill at this place, uh, and it was Bradley, to which I went then in, uh, I think, 98, uh, when, when, when Mike Joyce, its first president, was still its president. So I worked under uh, him and uh, two guys who are now co-editors with me of The Giving Review, Dan Schmidt and, and Bill Shambra. Bill left a couple of years afterwards and Dan stayed for low many decades and, and I with him, but I left when he did. So uh, as you mentioned, Bradley uh, did a lot in Milwaukee, uh, including revitalizing neighborhoods and doing some of the arts groups and things that a legacy foundation would traditionally do. On the policy front, it helped lay the foundations for school choice and welfare reform here in Wisconsin and then nationally. Bradley always seeing Milwaukee as a good playing field, a well-sized playing field to get things done and then take it to the next level, as it were, or at least as many people would see it. Uh, so here, but here's what I think I learned under, under those people, Joyce, Schmidt, and Shambra. Bradley was known for, at the time, I don't want to speak for the current Bradley, I don't work there, general operations and not project-specific support. Yeah. And why was that? Why, what was the, why was that strategic choice made? What was the insight there? You know, I think it reflected a level of trust in the grantees that might not necessarily always have been there among philanthropy more widely, and patience, really, a long-term worldview. You know, if you have 
a project specific uh, grant, you want at the end of it, which is usually not very long, to know what the project achieved. And, you know, Bradley really started in its current iteration in the late 80s and did play a part, we think, uh, maybe arrogantly, you know, in, yeah. in, in uh, the intellectual, the conservative ascendance then. Uh, and, and that's because there were institutions around that could be supported by a foundation, C3 groups, uh, think tanks and otherwise that needed, you know, to pay the light bill, you know, which meant general operating support for many years. Did other foundations uh, at the time or later, at, like, were they like, uh, so as you know, the convention, conventional wisdom still with respect to, at least on the grantee side is, oh, foundations just want to do specific projects and initiatives. They don't want to do mm-hmm. general operations support. We know that's not true from the data, but that's the idea out there. Were, mm-hmm. there, were there other foundations, do you think, did they learn from Bradley? Did they ask you why you were doing that? Do you think you had any impact on how others gave? Uh, if you can just let me first note, there were other, you know, Mike Joyce came to Bradley from Olin, which would have right. had a similar way of doing grant making. Uh, and there were others on the right, perhaps scafe among them. But in philanthropy more widely, I do think there were lessons learned from what I'll call the conservative ascendance uh, and the, the role philanthropy played in it. You know, there were several reports from groups uh, left of center or, or on the left about uh, the effectiveness of this kind of grant making. And there were attempts then to try to replicate it. Some, by the way, successful uh, attempts to do long-term support of institutions in a general operating uh, way. So, yeah, yeah. Liberals learned from conservatives, by the way. Joyce himself, you know, was, uh, we learned from liberals too, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Uh, Joyce would have been considered a neoconservative and and there was a familiarity with and engagement with uh, the left and some of the tactics used by by those among the left in previous decades 60s 70s there was not an over-reliance on expertise or metrics you know uh, to do so would have been we would have said and, and would still think uh, that would have been you know progressive or uh, you know e- elite we, we did not see ourselves as part of any bureaucratic philanthropic elite and uh, we went about our grant making uh, with little regard for uh, well-credentialed you know Ivy League uh, degrees though we did support some people in that world. So, I mean, I, I learned really the potential value of philanthropic support, including punching above our weight at the time and, and, and you know, doing things in a way that uh, allowed us to, do I say, take on, defend, you know, you know, we knew we were outnumbered uh, in dollar amounts and raw, raw numbers uh, by liberal foundations. But uh, I think we did a good job furthering uh, the interests of the, the Bradley brothers, including by educating policymakers in the public. Let's talk about where the uh, conversation is now then and the role of philanthropy. So you, you were at, uh, that's really what you cover now. That's your beats. You learned at Bradley how to, uh, I'm sure you got a lot of lessons about um, not only how philanthropy works well and how it works poorly, but sort of the dynamics of uh, how giving is, is done at, at major philanthropic institutions. So anyway, let's just talk about bring people into uh the conversation is a very small and narrow conversation, I feel like. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't know if you would agree. I mean, it's, it's getting beyond the borders of just the philanthropy sector. There are new books um, that come out. What's the, the Chuck Collins' book? What was his, the title of his book, Mike? Oh, he had his, uh, I don't know. Well quarters or something like that? Yeah, he applying good to great to the philanthropic. Oh, you're thinking of Chuck Collins. Never mind. Chuck Collins yeah. has a book where he's trying to, 
shake the trees and get people to give away more money, which fits within a slew of books recently, uh, including right. by Rob Reich, Anand Gerdhardis, Edgar Villanueva. Uh, Talk to people about, tell, tell us about those books. What, 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 is, what are the arguments that are being put out there now or the critiques of, of philanthropy, which isn't used to really getting strongly critiqued, I think, in America? Well, I think that's right. Uh, a stab of philanthropy, and here I mean cross-ideologically, in terms of philanthropy and those offering these critiques, the philanthropy is on the defense, as you might be able to tell from what I've told you about me. Mm-hmm. I, when I think of philanthropy, I do think of the policy-oriented, uh, policy-oriented foundations and givers for the most part. You know, and, and philanthropy is much wider than that. But there is a defensiveness because of attacks on it uh, for well, lately not being woke enough, if I can use the shorthand, uh, the contemporary. Uh, and that pressure uh, seems to be working, and that might be because there hasn't been much required for it to work. You know, there's a, the bureaucratic elite, a clerisy in establishment philanthropy, I, I guess I would call it, well-credentialed, well-educated, you know, smart. And these are, these are critiques coming from the, within their own uh, class, in other words, and so they're very responsive to them. That is exactly right. How does that play out? In the, how does that play out in the ground before we go on to the other critiques? Like um, when you respond to not being woke enough, what is that? What changes are, are we seeing then in response to those critiques? Well, the fair thing to say, I think, is that it's too early to tell. But mm-hmm. uh, now, like in the last year or two, announcements of new program emphases, uh, more grassroots. Uh, if if you take them at their word in the announcements, and, and I do, yeah. But I think there might be a coming tension between. That emphasis, and what I guess I'll call the previous one or the parallel one, uh, to rely on data-driven, uh, you know, measurable outcomes. Uh, right. There, there might be some tension. I'll say here on the left. I wonder. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Which, it'd be interesting to see which of those sort of wins out as being most important to um, to that the uh, philanthropy uh, institutions that are oriented in this way. I mean, one way I've seen it playing out on the ground. To be specific, is um, this had never happened before that I had seen where two things: number one, foundations really getting serious and denying grants to denying even the review of applications of groups that don't have suitable, what the foundations regard as suitable uh, racial um, diversity on their boards, possibly even Mm -hmm. on their staffs, Uh, and so there's. A bit of a scramble going on. Uh, I, I'm seeing within certain organizations to to meet those requirements for for good or for ill. Uh, the second thing, this is a little stranger to me, and this one I really don't get. I wonder if you've heard about this and if, what you think of it. Is uh, a pressure to make sure that one's donors, if you're at a grantee, a charity, that your donors are um, suitably diverse uh, in the in the way that these institutions define diverse, so racially, ethnically. Possibly from a gender standpoint, I don't, that doesn't seem to be as big a deal. And that's really curious to me. Uh, first of all, very, very few charities have that kind of demographic data on their donors. Yeah. You know, you really ask what the, how they identify racially when, when, they, when you get a gift. Um, yeah. And secondly, here's what I find it weird. I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, Mike, but I want to get your opinion to this. Um, obviously, one of the issues that we, we face in this, in this country is um, wealth and income is not uh, equally distributed uh, racially, uh, especially among African Americans and Latin, uh, Latin Americans. Uh, there's less wealth, less income proportionally. Um, 
So obviously, any, the donor class to any organization is going to be just from the baseline expectation is it's not going to look exactly like the percentage percentage breakdown of the of you know of the country in terms of race. So how are you supposed to raise less money so that you get better racial diversity? I mean, these are really weird things that people are dealing with out there now because of this woke thing you're talking about. <laughs> well, I agree. You know, talking about forthcoming tensions. So yeah. talking about forthcoming tensions, one of the first might be on this donor diversity demand. Uh, I mean, for a group to be able to take that position is a luxury. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, which I mean, you will not always have when the light bill comes. If you had too many white donors, would you start giving back? I don't, I'm not even sure how this is supposed to work. It's just weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's been on my well, mind. Well, I don't know. I don't know that it will. Yeah. But the, you know the the, uh, the criticism of wokeness and philanthropy is uh, happening alongside criticism of what I'm going to call wokeness uh, in academia, which is that criticism sort of been around for a while, and now there's a new criticism of wokeness in corporate America. Uh, I think these are all good and fair criticisms. In fact, I'd like to see more uh, of this kind of discussion, argument, reasoned, fair, civil in the philanthropic sector. Uh, and we're actually trying to bring some of that coverage of it uh, at, at any rate. Uh, so on the defensive would be the best way, I believe, to characterize uh, the conversation, as you term it, in, in philanthropy. And, not, and now, not just about wokeness, but about other things as well. Exactly. Many of which could be connected to wokeness at its core. But, uh, right, I might be being a little lazy there just using wokeness in general. But, uh, you know, conservative policy-oriented philanthropy from which I come uh, is going to have tensions as well. And we can talk about those because uh, there's a concern warranted about donor freedom and not wanting to be told what to do by anybody, a donor or the government or anything like that. Uh, and there's a the tension between that, maybe, probably, and uh, other other principles that can be applied here, which is, well, the wokeness of philanthropy. You know, yeah. uh, if you're defending philanthropic freedom strongly, you're going to be defending the right of uh, we can talk about whether it's a natural right or a constitutional right or a statutory right, but you're going to be a def- you're going to be like a defense attorney defending uh, things that people, or in this case, philanthropies, are doing with which you really don't agree and think might be doing quite a bit of damage. So I want to draw this out. This is an important point you're making, and I want to we're going to we're going to get specific about it. But uh, first, let's uh, pause for a break, and we'll be right back with. Mike Hartman, uh, Director of the Center for Strategic Giving. I'll be right back. All right, time for a practicality. And I'm happy to have uh, with us here today my friend and colleague, Cecilia Deem. How are you doing, Cecilia? Doing well, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Cecilia comes to us from uh, the... the uh, Small towns and countrysides around Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Beautiful area. And you are a managing consultant with us, correct? That's right. Yep. Good. I'm glad I have that right. So far, so good. Um, well, one of the things uh, that we are often talking to clients about is uh, meeting with their supporters, uh, which is a really, really good thing to do. <laughs> I think most people know, if you don't know that. Um, it's the most important thing you can do if you are uh, running a nonprofit or thinking about its future is to to meet with your supporters. But people get really nervous about these meetings, uh, what to do, what not to do. Uh, but you are going to tell us here today, Cecilia, about five things to do. These are good things. Uh, five things to do at a 
a donor meeting, right? That's, that's exactly right. And they're, they're pretty pragmatic things. Good. Uh, so if, if, yeah, if, uh, if you're hoping for some uh, secret strategy, this is not it. But, uh, but over the course of the years that I was uh, meeting with donors, I learned pretty much all of these uh, through trial and error. So I would say that you know the very first thing, the most important thing is that if you get a meeting with a donor and it is a meeting at which you intend to ask for money, don't forget to ask for money. Uh. Um, it is so easy to get caught up in a good conversation. Um, and then to feel you know, like, oh, well, now I've created a sense of camaraderie and it's going to ruin it if I ask for money at the end of this. And I mean, or any other host of reasons, you know, sometimes, of course, a meeting goes poorly and then it would be inappropriate to ask for money. But in general, if you're in a good, me- if you're in a meeting, you wanted to ask for money, the meeting goes well, make the ask. Um, it is That's so good. much harder to do that in a follow up than when you're sitting there face to face. Uh, so that's, that's my first, uh, quote unquote hack is it really not a hack. Um, the second thing also really important is to be on time. Um, this is a really small thing, but it's, you know, it's a sign of respect to the person that you're meeting with. Um, you don't want your donors waiting on you. And this can be hectic when you're a road warrior and you're jumping around from city to city and flights and rental cars and hotels and the whole thing. Um, so I, I encourage everyone to really look at the map, give themselves enough time, set whatever alarms you need to, and don't be late for your donor meetings. It just looks bad. It is a bad look. It's a very bad look. Yes. That's right. Jeremy, you're Swiss, so you understand the importance of it. I, I, I do indeed. Uh, <laughs> always be on time. <laughs> donors or non-donors. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so then the, the third tip that I have is to you know, Jerry, Jerry Panis used to call of, uh, of, uh, Institute for Charitable Giving used to call this listening the gift, but basically just don't do all the talking. Um, a lot of people, probably myself included will fill voids in conversation, uh, if they feel uncomfortable or, you know, the person you're speaking to isn't forthcoming. Um, but when you're meeting with the donor, you really want to get them talking. Um, so you just want to keep asking them questions, trying to get at you know, what they like about your organization, what they respond to about the mission. Um, you know, don't, don't fall for the trap of doing all the talking if you're the major gift person. Um, and uh, so that's, that's number three. Number four, don't pretend that you have the answers if you don't have the answers. <laughs> Another easy trap to fall into. So easy, um, especially if you're, uh, if you're working with a policy group. Uh, where you might be inclined to be like, well, I kind of feel like this is probably where that bill stands. So I'll just, you know, just don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, don't try to make up the number of people globally living in poverty. If you don't know it offhand, just say you're going to check on it and get back to them. Um, that's, that's, you know, it's important for building trust. And it really is. Yeah. Yeah. And then my final little tip here is make sure that you leave something behind. Um, not, and I'm not mean, I don't mean a glove or a handkerchief a phone. <laughs> or a phone, right. But actually leave, leave behind a piece of content that's nicely designed, that puts your organization in a good light. And in my view, the, the real purpose of that is so that they have something to share when their wife or colleague or someone comes in and says, oh, hey, how did that meeting go? And they say, oh, glad you asked. Here's a beautifully designed folder with an annual report and uh, investor prospectus from yeah. this organization. That's very good. You're right. The leave behind 
Uh, and also just as a reminder, the next day or the next day when they come back into that room or their office that you were there and there's some unfinished business to take care of if, if, uh, if a check was not handed out at the very moment of the meeting. Exactly. Friendly little reminder. Desk space is at a premium for these donors, so try to get on it. <laughs> very good, Cecilia. Those are all good tips. I'm glad we did the five ways, things to do at a donor meeting instead of the five ways to blow a donor meeting as we were originally were discussing. <laughs> I, think, I think this is uh, better suited to the medium. We'll, we'll do the negative stuff later. That, we could fill a whole show with all the, all the bad stuff you can do. Exactly. And listeners, I'm sure also. That'd be, that'd be fun. That's right. Thanks a lot. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeremy. Bye. All right, uh, we're back with Mike Hartman, director of the Center for Strategic Giving, also a uh, fellow at the senior fellow at the Capital Research Center. Um, so, Mike, we'll get back to this point you were making about um, uh, conservatives uh, and philanthropy and the sort of tensions there between um, what should be defended and what shouldn't be defended. To go back right now, what we're seeing is here the major issues people are bringing up. The lead philanthropy is. Yeah, there's a there's a critique from from sort of the woke, we might put it that way, from the very far left. Um, that's very uh, obviously uh, race oriented. It's connected to some other critiques that are. There's a lot about we we mentioned before, sort of a hoarding of wealth. There's critiques that just come like philanthropy is just a way to hide uh, massive amounts uh, of wealth, uh, and yet to be able to Im- get tax breaks for for that hiding, yet also to be able to use that wealth to influence uh the world in really really powerful ways still uh, and anti-democratic ones that would be the critique you know yeah yeah who, who are the people making that kind of critique before we get back to the conservatives i just want to kind of lay this all out for people so they know what's yeah. going on well i think rob reich would be a leader among uh those arguing that uh oligarchic uh philanthropy is is anti-democratic uh he's a professor at stanford not the former uh cabinet secretary and it's a good book with a kind of harsh critique. Others have joined him. Uh, I mentioned Anand Girdhardas before, who would, I think, probably be a, he's a little bit more of a popularizer of the position, I guess. I don't mean that as an epithet, but, uh, and, and you know, it's hard to argue. There are a lot of people, uh, rich men and women that are getting a lot done or get the ear of, uh, and I would say as me, former conservative foundation employee, you know, all is they all seem to be uh, to the left of center, uh, or yeah. or even outright progressive, if not woke. I'm trying to avoid using that since I did so much in the previous year. Here. But, no, uh, it's okay. Well, you pointed yeah. out one of your articles recently that if you look to the top fifty givers, according to Forbes uh, magazine, only three of them could be characterized as, as social conservatives, at least in any way. I yeah, mean, you know, it's not like it's some even split. Sometimes you'll hear with um. Uh, who's, who is the, the writer, the woman who writes a lot of heavy breathing articles about Cokes and others? Um, well, are you the, thinking of Jane, Jane Mayer? Thank you, Jane Mayer. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just, uh, it, whether she's right or not about the subject, uh, the particular subject she writes about, the particular people, um, yeah. it certainly gives a misleading idea to the readers of The New Yorker that there's sort of a, anything like an equal amount of power. Uh, when you look at a kind of a left or right distinction in, in elite philanthropy. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. And where I work, Capital Research Center devotes a lot of its time and energy to trying to quantify this, I'll say, imbalance, ideological imbalance 
establishment philanthropy could not be likened to or called a marketplace of ideas. It, it is not, uh, there is not diversity among the big, among big philanthropy, uh, big policy oriented philanthropy is quite overwhelmingly, uh, would, you, liberal. would you say it's as monocultural or monolithic as sort of contemporary elite academia? Yes, I would. Uh, you know, hard, right. How would one prove this? But it is. Yeah. <laughs> you go to a council on foundations meeting. I think d- dentists and their spouses in the middle of America be shocked and just think it's kind of weird, you know? Yes. And now, you know, for all the attention being devoted to that in the academic context and now the corporate context, more should perhaps more attention should be brought to bear on philanthropy and what's going on there. And by the way, some are bringing it, you know, including on the left and the right. They might someday be, I'm thinking of J.D. Vance, Tucker Carlson. There is a populist critique of. of Well, let's talk about that populist critique. How does it differ um, from the, draw it out for us a little bit, and then I'll talk about how it differs from the approach or perspective on philanthropy taken by more the previous sort of generation of of, uh, of conservative uh, thinkers or, or critics. Oh, in, of conserv- on the right, what's changed? Well, it's not unrelated to that which gave rise uh, to the ascendancy of, of Trump and uh, what I'll call populist conservatism in 2016. It would be less concerned with the niceties of coastal, I'll say East Coast, I guess here, establishment thinking. So it's willing to shake things up and, uh, you know, I, uh, it's more aggressive and it is, uh, less establishment. You know, there was a conservative establishment still is, it was reflected in philanthropy. And here you have, it's unfair to quote Vance, right? In the same way that I was just using the term woke. I don't just want to keep saying yeah. Vance because there are others, but, uh, it's a furrowing of the eyebrow about what's going on in establishment philanthropy in America is well warranted. And if some people want to shake it up and he's saying he's one of them, you know, I think they should at least be listened to. Well, how, how do they want to shake it up though? Let's get, because uh, so it used to be the, uh, it still is. I mean, I don't say it used to be, it still is um, uh, from uh, philanthropy roundtable of sort of like center right-ish um, uh, organization in Washington, other groups that the key thing about philanthropy was just was freedom the the the, the to protect the freedom of donors and and philanthropic institutions to use their uh money for whatever purposes they want as long as it's within the within the law right uh, that really all we were trying to do here is make sure that the government wasn't stepping in and uh over regulating or can or just regulating even anymore, yeah. increasingly regulating the philanthropic sector. That's not, doesn't seem to be what, because let's just keep using J.D. Vance's name. Like yeah. people like Vance are talking, they're not so concerned about that. In fact, it seems like they want more uh, government uh, regulation of philanthropy. Is that right? Or to just get government out of the business and not uh, incentivize or subsidize. Right. So, yeah, talk about both of those possible directions that the populists are, are talking yeah. And there would be potential overlap with those on the left. Uh, on the other, you know, they might be more aggressive than their would-be allies on the left. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if if you if we listed, and I guess we might do that, all of the reform yeah. reforms on the table, you know, they they vary from aggressive ones naturally to uh, more ones that would sort of tinker on the edges. But uh, you know, if you take Vance at his words, he says he wants to yank the exemption for. 
what he would say is woke foundations. And by the way, you know, I, I don't know. What exemption? Throw that on the list. What are we talking about exactly, though? What what exemption is? Yeah. Well, if you and I had a million dollars and we wanted to create a foundation, we would apply and not have to pay taxes in a way that you and I would if we started a company to do X, make yes. lawnmowers or something. Right. And now if you're Harvard, which is, gets a lot of attention, maybe unfair that we go right to that too, but you know, and you're seen by many as a pillar of an ideology in America that's not doing well by it. Why should money go into a general fisc allow you to not have to pay taxes to do what you're doing? That's so. Yeah. So the know, point is to strip away the tax exemptions. There would be no put a million dollars over here. You, know, you make yeah. your hedge fund guy, you make your $10 million, uh, you know, yeah. with 7 million of it into a, a foundation and that's not taxed. That, that's, what, that's what we're talking about taking away. Exactly. Okay. Uh, now let's take, we're in the, in the thought experiment where we're in that world. Philanthropy would not go away. It just wouldn't be incentivized. Uh, right. Of course, the whole thing something. about incentivizing it from the beginning, I mean, this goes stretches uh, it's, this is into the common law, if I'm, if I'm correct about this. Yep. The idea of incentivizing uh, a philanthropy was that it was going towards a public good, common good, right? Correct. Uh, and, this, is what's being, this is what's being questioned by people like Vance. Exactly. Uh, so you can see where this is going, you know, right? Uh, charity. It was supposed to help charity, which funds the public good. I guess we're, uh, the, the argument then is what's the public good? Well, is it... Uh, essentially becoming part of the Democratic Party to save democracy and pay for election counting, governmental right. entities, vote, vote counting. You know, philanthropy is politicized, and one can right. wonder whether that's charity, as the word was originally used in the 69 Act, creating this legal structure. So you can see why it might be difficult for what we'll hear now go with, you know, van sites to get allies on the left. But hey, Let's ask or encourage the discussion of this. If philanthropy is as politicized as some say it is, including on the right, then is it the charity that right. deserves, got, has uh, the tax beneficial setup? That so we would. So in this, the most radical of these proposals would be to essentially eliminate um, the exemption altogether. Is there a midway where people would still want to sort of somehow just? Um, draw somehow some kind of clear distinction. I, I'm, I'm, it's not clear to me what the criteria would be here that yeah. I would, would do this between charity and politics. I mean, they, that exists in law now. I mean, Correct. the free status says you can do these things, you can't do these things. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are other people like Philip Hamburger, for instance, who I think will be on the podcast later this season, who would say, um, would go the other way, right? And say, no, no, don't just every, everything, wait, one person's politics is another person's charity. Don't, don't, uh, no, no lines at all. Just, um, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. This, this seems to be a hard, it's hard for me to get my mind around where a working, workable line might be drawn, but I'm open to it. Well, I think that's right. And the best way to not draw a workable line is to refuse to draw it and have everybody <laughs> pay full freight or everybody gets the full benefit as it were, or incentivization, yeah. uh, which, you know, there, that there is a cleanliness to it. Uh, there's a professor at, there, a fellow at uh, Hoover you should consider having on to John Cochran, who we've talked to at the Giving Review that might uh, offer uh, nice observations here. But uh, things short of the, you know, uh, ones we're talking about, the, the, the aggressive positions on either side would be 
changing the actual dollar amounts permitted to be spent or given away under the tax exempt status. You know, you could cap. Okay. I think the, our, Rusty Reno uh, threw that out once as a suggestion. Uh, yeah. You could change the percentages of assets permitted to be spent or given away. Usually people who propose a change in that percentage are uh, proposing an increase. So more money has to be given away and can't be quote unquote warehoused. Uh, you could change the timelines during which grants could be made, you know, a certain number of years after either the creation of the foundation or the death of the donor. Uh, you can change the rates. I don't want to start boring people, but this, would no, be this is good. I, actually, this is specifics. I think people, uh, yeah, about. you could change the rates that apply when the, the rates of taxation that apply when the timelines and amounts and percentages are violated, because that's the arrow that the government has in its quiver is to tax you. Uh, and, and they, you know, that can kick in at a different time or a different rate, depending on, uh, you know, the degree to which people want to allow for latitude, uh, would be the way they would see it on the government, uh, on the part of philanthropy. Uh, and there are many more narrow yeah. proposals out there, you know, operating expenses that counts against the required charitable payout. So you, you can Google up Ford's nice headquarters. That's, they're not paying taxes on that. You know, that's, yeah. that's you're paying for that. Uh, that's somebody could plausibly say, uh, <laughs> right. Family right. members, you know, are being flown around to nice places. There is a lot of it. So there is a lot of what your normal American who who heard about this stuff would consider uh, abuse. I mean, I think really, right? I mean, it's like we're not giving the tax exemption is not so you can fly around <laughs> family members to on junkets. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lack of awareness of uh, yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Hey, well, well, just to get to one specific before we move on, I know there's other things too, and I want to I want to touch on all these. I just want people to know kind of what's it's a, it is a time of ferment, not yet action very much, but ferment. Yeah. So the, in 2017, uh, uh, the Trump administration uh, and Congress uh, uh, signed a law, passed a law, uh, the TCJA. I can't remember what it stands for. Mm, yeah, tax so. Cuts and Job Act tax or something else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it included an excise tax on uh, endowment investment income, um, I, I believe, something like 1.4%. This has not been done, right? I don't believe there was. No, no. Oh, well, they passed it. Oh, no, they, that. No, no, but before that, there was no excise tax. Oh, correct. This was new. Right. This was a wake-up call. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And it was yeah. fought tooth and nail by, especially by colleges yeah. and universities. They tend to have the largest endowments. And um, I think maybe even a. I want to say it only applied to endowment to over a certain size, but I could be I could be wrong. Yep, yep, yep. And as you can imagine, by picking only ones over a certain size, there might have been some ideological <laughs> overlap, <laughs> hey. which was known to those who passed it. Yeah, this was part of the populist. Do I say uprising or whatever? You know, this was a reaction against elite higher education and the money they were properly. Okay, so we've had this for four years now, three years. It really it probably went into effect in twenty eighteen. Three plus years. What have um, have we seen uh, some degradation in the quality of education that colleges and universities are, are able to uh, to give, or a degradation in access um, uh, to to their um, offerings among students and families of lesser means? Is there any evidence at all, in other words, that you've seen or anybody has presented that this one point four percent excise tax has really compromised what Harvard and Yale can deliver? Uh, one has to say no. <laughs> I mean, I know no. the one who's asking the question gives it away, but <laughs> yeah, you tip your hand. Have they even said? Is there any report? Hey, man, this is really hurt. Uh, no. Now they did fight it. 
So that's evidence that they think it either might hurt or they think there'll be further things coming down the pike. And the current House bill, language in the current House version of what's going to be done next, essentially guts this task uh, tax. Oh, really? Okay. By saying, by allowing them to not have to pay it if they give more away in aid to students. So one could say it achieved that purpose, I suppose. Or yeah. one could say 1.4 is awfully low. Let's go higher. Or if you're a Vansite, well, wait a minute. Let's let's ta- let's you know get get rid of it <laughs> or tax it more. Get rid of the differential treatment for uh, nonprofit. Well, and, um, somebody else has put out there that you you wrote about in the giving review that why only colleges and universities maybe apply it to every kind of institution. Yeah, there's a, a Jennifer Bird Pollen is a law professor, I think, at the University of Kentucky, who noted recently on Twitter. Hey, wait a minute, I agree with JD Vance. She was having fun with it, but the, yeah. the answer is yes. So, and, and, and it's a fair to me. It's it's at least something that should be discussed, uh, and and the tensions that it would cause within both the left and the right should be you know met head on. And, I mean, it, absent evidence that it, that it, it again integrated access or quality of education, it seems to me that it's it's there's a strong presumption in its favor in terms of returning money to taxpayers. The median gain, I think I got this from you too, the median gain in endowments uh, of $500 or more in uh, the last year, I don't know exactly what the time frame was, yeah. 34%, plus 34%. Yeah. And I think they were able to afford, afford that 1.4% hit, <laughs> you know, uh, that XI set. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing about all this. The endowments are massive, absolutely massive. Tax advantage, and who does that? Who does that end up, you know, benefiting? Really, yeah. universities are basically, as I think, uh, Professor uh, Bird Pollen said, uh, Hoover's Cochrane has said, they're uh, hedge funds with you know a football team. Yeah. Uh, so all right, they're having fun, but you know, it's a lot of money and big philanthropy. Uh, a lot of it, anyway, is kind of in the same category, and. Uh, I mean, you know. do people have any idea how big the Gates and Walton and, and not just Gates and Walton, I mean, I'm just picking on them because of the two best known. Yeah. They they their, be, corpuses, yeah. Their, their corpuses are massive, right? Mm-hmm. They are massive. Gates would be right up there, I think, with those higher education institutions, probably maybe surpassing it. Uh, and, and, and we should say, we're talking now about the top, top. You know, there's a lot of philanthropy going on that's uh, at a lower level, uh, and the pressures might not be as great, but, uh, you know, big philanthropy is huge and getting huger political and getting more political uh and and it's just worth highlighting bringing attention to it and maybe trying to do something about it mike what was the uh do you know uh i didn't ask you about this i I have no way prepared you for this question so Uh, i'm scared you're scaring me what was the core of the arnold madoff proposal that was um put forward i think just in the last year or so yeah Um, can you, can you talk about that at all? Do you, do you know uh, yeah. You know, uh, Professor Ray, uh, I think it might be Madoff in, in Boston, has proposed for a long time uh, preventing what she would call the warehousing of assets in donor-advised funds. Uh, and that is getting attention, including because uh, John Arnold is uh, signing on to the proposal. It's taking legislative form, the King-Grassley proposal. Uh, they have... They essentially propose a deal. You know, you can give more away now or not get your deduction until you give it away later. I, I think that's a fa- as fair a summary as would be appropriate right. uh, here. So they're not forcing you. You know, 
whether those who want to protect donor freedom sometimes say it's forced. They're, they're giving you a choice. It might be a Hobbesian choice. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of money in donor-advised funds that is a charity. You know, that is a grant recipient, a donor-advised fund. That is going to and managed by uh, money management firms. Uh, and it's kind of sitting there would be what Arnold and Madoff would say. It, it's, not not going going to to it's not going to the charitable purpose for which uh, the 501c3 you know, no, segment of the tax code exists is the argument, right? So just for everybody's clear, if you give a million dollars, you, you put a million dollars, it could be $10,000, it doesn't matter how much it is, into your yeah. fidelity, you know, donor advised fund, you get to take the full deduction of that million dollars right now. Yeah. Um, but you do not now, have to, to be given out yet to fidelity, by fidelity. Right. So it's not going to charity, at least not fast. <laughs> but it's making a lot of money for those money management firms in the meantime. And I don't know that that's that the was argument. the purpose. Of, that's yeah. the argument. The, 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 the rebuttal to that is actually money goes out of DAFs faster than it does off, uh, on average out of foundation corpuses. And so this might be in some ways a solution in search of a problem. But the principle is, is, an inter- is to me, it seems pretty sound, which is no deduction until your money actually hits a charity somewhere on the ground. <laughs> yeah. A fidelity DAF, not really a charity. Well, that's, that's the argument against it. That's right. And this is causing a lot of reaction, including, you know, donor freedom advocates yeah. don't. No, many of my friends, I'll say that many people I highly respect and friends don't, don't like it at all. But, mm-hmm. I, um, but that, this is the kind of argument that's happening out there right now that I think people may not be aware of. Another thing, when you spoke to John Arnold, he's a philanthropist uh, in, in uh, I think, Houston. He's in Texas. Um, he did something interesting. Uh, he started a or converted, I can't remember, uh, an existing foundation to an LLC or just started oh, yeah. an LLC. What was that about? And why did, did, why are people like him thinking about taking that route? So they have more control over their money and don't have to bargain with the state about restrictions on it because mm-hmm. they're saying, we don't want your stinking taxes. I'm joking there, but you know, yeah, but they're not. they will forego the exemption for the ability to do what they want. So if a Vance person, you know, proposer wants to get rid of tax exemption for uh, politicized charity, you will be forcing yourself into the position that Arnold is in, paying full freight to do really whatever you want. You don't have to put up with the strictures. So and there's, one no, might, there's no reporting requirements, you know, to report who, to whom you gave money at all right yeah that's exactly right and that to me i mean uh, what was wrong with that you know uh, in other words it's the bargain it's a bargain with the state this is a terminology used you know by libertarians richard epstein and so forth and you of course cannot bargain away people's constitutional rights which would be what a donor for freedom person would say you're doing but you know i don't know you don't have a right to the uh, to be uh, the beneficiary of an incentive uh, or, or the subsidization. I'm trying to avoid using the word subsidization because yeah. it causes yeah. hackles, but okay. Right. You know. So yeah, the increased LLCization uh, of philanthropy might be on its way, of big philanthropy. Uh, and it would certainly be on its way if the populist uh, criticisms right. of philanthropy uh, get their way. Exactly. You know, I will say this. The best rebuttal that I've seen to the um, argument that, hey, you're getting a subsidy. You, you're trying to avoid that term, but I'll just say it. You're getting certain benefits by uh, tax benefits by being able to set up a foundation, shield, shield money you're going to give away from taxation. Um, 
is that this is not um, this is not new. This wasn't something we just made up in the in the fifties or the, sometime in the nineteen hundreds. That this idea does stretch back into the myths of history. It's it, it's rooted in common law. Yeah. Um, if you is that something that the populist critics are are grappling with that kind of rebuttal, or is that even being made? Is that my the only one saying that? I. <laughs> I have to say, no, I have to sort of, I don't want to punt for them, but I am not aware of any deep, you know, there's not even really illicit reforms, right? Specific reforms coming from uh, the populist uh, critics of philanthropy yet. Uh, Except for the endowment excise tax thing. Right. Yeah, that really was a populist reform, it seems to me. Exactly. But I don't, I have not seen any uh, criticism rooted in common law, but you know, I'm sure there is one, right? I got to find and and encourage people to... uh, contribute to this. Hey, Mike, if you don't know about it, I don't think it exists, man. Well, that's nice of you to say, but you know, I know enough to know that it's out there. <laughs> I worked for somebody once who would say no one's done anything on this. That was pre-internet, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, a, re- a return to charity would be a good thing. And, and then the Center for Civil Society, I think might be making that argument increasingly as we go on. Uh, the politicization of philanthropy has had great costs, including to trust in philanthropy uh, yeah. would be what i would say and you know let's look look around i'm speaking here again as the conservative that i am you know this uh critical race theory. this this to me comes from philanthropically supported groups with uh that are that take advantage of a tax system meant to help them uh, yeah. or groups that do what they say they're doing or should be doing uh, final word, Mike, what there, I don't know if you want to show cards here, but one or two reforms, uh, changes that you would really want to see. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, I work for a 501 C three that doesn't lobby. So I got to be careful and it's funded by philanthropy, which uh, might have an opinion on this, but, uh, so I'm going to be cowardly and say, I want to see all of these things discussed and proposed. Uh, I will say that I do not think it's so unreasonable to float the idea of to explore i think there'd be benefit in looking at what might be more distinct lines between charity and politics and that might just be returning to meaningfully the language of the 69 act which is where this was currently laid out or you know the the current law is on the basis of that uh it has roots in common law it does but uh, uh you know uh, philanthropy should return to charity and get rid of the politicization. Now, I fully understand if it's the left that's doing the politicizing, the right has every right. The capital R right has every lower R right to say, let's fight fire with fire. Uh, right. But nonetheless, I think there needs to be more attention paid to the underlying, as is being as has been brought to academia and is being brought to now uh, corporate America. I'll, I'll, I'm going to let you go with that weaselly way of getting out. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. But if there is a way to depoliticize any sector uh, of our uh, uh, society, that'd be a good thing. Uh, Mike Hartman, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I totally appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>